welcome. We gather here in the presence of God to come and respond and worship. And so it is good to be together. And as I mentioned on other Saturday evenings, it's a chance for us to remember that we gather here in person, but also that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are joining us online to worship together. And so there's a chance to remember that God's Spirit is what unites us together, even as we are in different locations, as one body, as one church together. Well, we gather in God's presence, and a couple things just to share with you. Um, one is that this Wednesday is, uh, we're having a congregational meeting. It's at 7.30 on Zoom. The information is in the uh, weekly email, the link's there. Uh, if you have questions, let me know. I know it's a busy time, but if you're able to join for that uh, meeting, it won't be that long, but a good chance to check in about the fall and just have a chance to have some questions and answers uh, as a church as we look ahead. Um, also, a reminder that our service is shorter than normal. Uh, a couple of things, instead of having our greeting time during the service, I encourage you after the service to take some time outside on the sidewalk and catch up with one another. If you're worshiping online, to take a moment to worship, to greet those you're worshiping with or to send a text, uh, a greeting. And also, we're not taking offerings, so if you'd like to give to the work of the church, you can do that online through the church website, or there is a gray basket in the back that you can drop off a gift there. As we get ready to come before God and worship, let's take a moment of quiet to prepare ourselves for worship. sing for joy to the living God. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in twin tents of wickedness. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you.
to take some time to pray together. And just a couple of things of a direction. Uh, I'm going to take some time in the beginning of just quiet. I encourage you to take a moment to reflect on kind of how you arrive in this place, what things you're feeling or what things you're bringing with you as you come to worship. And after some time of quiet, I'll lead us in prayer. And then out of that, we'll go into our time of confession. Let's have a time of quiet before God. Lord, we thank you that you've called us and we acknowledge that we are those who are gathered by you into your presence. And Lord, we come and ask for your attention as we think about the world around us and as we consider our own hearts, our own place. As we look around, we see that there is much difficulty and much suffering going on. Lord, we think of the continued struggle of, of health and of the virus and uncertainties. Lord, we also pray for those who are suffering due to the wildfires in the West. We pray with them and join them as we mourn the loss of life. We pray for those who are facing the fires, seeking to control them. And Lord, we pray for healing for your creation as we seek to be stewards of your world. Lord, we also, we pray for all of those, whether in our congregation, brothers and sisters in Christ, or just our neighbors, all those who feel that their lives do not matter, who are told that they are less, we thank you that all bear the image that you have given us in Christ, that all of us possess in you a radical dignity. And we pray, Lord, that our leaders and society, our church, that we would affirm and recognize these things in all people. Lord, we also come to you just in our own struggles, and we come as those desperate to hear your good news. Lord, in our fears, we ask that you would bring comfort. In our frustrations around work, around school, around having no clear choices about how things should be, around uncertainties, Lord. In our frustrations, we ask that you would be present to remind us of your control, your commitment to us in Christ. That you don't expect us to have all things figured out, but yet you come to us in the midst of our need and our struggles. Lord, in our loss, loss of those that we love or loss of plans and opportunities, a change in how things are. Lord, meet us by your spirit. You know what it is to be weary. And so, Lord, come alongside of us and let us know your strength. Let us know the assurance of your provision, the assurance of your steadfast love in our exhaustion, our impatience, our anger or frustration, Lord. Let us rest and know again that we are your children in Christ that you see us and you accept us in your grace. And Lord, let us rest there. Let you be a refuge, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
now enter a time of confession where we can come before God bringing our sin and trusting in his grace. and our needs to God. Lord, we thank you for your grace and the promise that it is greater than our sin. We thank you for the good news in Christ that the final word in our life is not our performance, not how other people view us or our status. The final word is not based in our righteousness or what we can accomplish, but it rests in you, Christ, from beginning to end. And so we give you thanks. We pray that we'd find peace and rest by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you to stand with me and hear these words of assurance from Acts 2. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved.
The New Testament lesson comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The Gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 21, verses 6 through 17. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall not be called, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, Pastor Chad, he kicked off our fall series in the book of Isaiah. And one of the things that we heard is that Isaiah is a prophet in a time of great trouble. And in our passage today, Isaiah will take us closer to that trouble and give us a vision that will invite us to hold our lived history with the reality of who God is. So let's turn together, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13.
Well, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he had covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stumps remain when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Well, this is God's word. It's given for our good. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we come to you now as best as we are able with open hands and open ears and open hearts. We ask that you would meet us in all the places that we are. Meet us there and show us your son who is seated at your right hand, praying for all of us right now. Show us his grace, Father, and change us by it. Amen. Well, following a long poetic opening scene of judgment and woe, Isaiah orients us with a simple historical phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died. Who is King Uzziah? Well, King Uzziah had a very long reign, a very prosperous reign. And during that time, Israel had flourished politically and militarily. It had even become a culture of abundance where there was wealth and affluence. But the other, the darker reality in Israel's story is that they were becoming more unjust. They were greedy and arrogant. They were materialistic and pleasure-seeking. They worshiped God less and became much more turned in on themselves. They had become smug. They had known prosperity, and they started to believe that their prosperity put them at a distance from the problems of the world. And the thing about this view of the world is that all the problems out there, you begin to believe that they will never be the problems in here. And this wasn't just a bunch of bad apples influencing some people in these sinful and broken ways. Isaiah, he wants us to see that and hear how pervasive and broken and systemic 
these things were in the life of Israel and its people. And one more thing. (laughs) There was a massive army to the north, Assyria, slowly moving its way down towards Israel, conquering and destroying. And so we can begin to imagine the turmoil, the, the anxiety, and when the long reigning, the long prospering king, Uzziah, dies. It was a moment of cultural and national crisis with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of questions about the future. And the death of their king, it only intensified those feelings. And so they are left asking, who will lead us? It's a striking that this question of leadership is as ancient as it is new, right? I mean, we may not be facing the dreadful fear of an invading army, but there are real questions about the lasting impact that this past year will have on our, our economy, on the long-term health of our, of our country. And the virus and the leadership through it has elevated the divide among rich and poor, black and white, justice and order, individual freedoms and and looking after one another. And our circumstances that they have poked on a hole, uh, our circumstances has poked at a hole in our smugness. All the ways we as a country lean on our prosperity, lean on our individuality, lean on our wealth and privilege. And it's around these realities that that Isaiah, he orients his hearers into his vision. Isaiah says, in the year the king Uzziah died, notice what he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. It's a provocative and powerful response to that question that we asked before. Who will lead them? In this very real moment in time, when Uzziah, when Uzziah dies, is, Isaiah is telling us that the real king, the real ruler of this world is alive and reigning right now. It's a profound contrast. And of course, hanging in the air is this question of loyalty and question of worship and allegiance. Right? Which king does Israel serve? The dead king who has seemingly given them prolonged wealth and prosperity, who has set up a kingdom insulated from God, individualistic and full of idolatry, where injustice thrives, especially against those most vulnerable. Or will their hearts return to the king who was alive and sitting upon the throne? And you want to know what this king is like? Well, Isaiah, he gives us a glimpse, a glimpse at the train of this king's robe. And I have to say, Isaiah's vision, it's awesome. (laughs) It's full of wonder and majesty and, and absolutely terrifying. Right, the immense radiance of God's robe bearing down upon him, the overwhelming holiness and purity of God saturating the temple, shaking the thresholds, and God's presence facing complete and utter holiness. Isaiah knows in that moment who he really is. The brilliance of God's holiness, it shines a terrifying light on his brokenness, on all of the darkness that resides in him. 
all of the idolatry, the self-centeredness, all of the fragile boasting, all of the sin is exposed. There's no self-deception. There's no hiding, no sin management in this moment. He cannot escape the reality of who he is before God. And there are no other words, no more true words in that moment than just to simply say, woe is me. And notice, God doesn't have to offer words. The seraphim don't have to offer words to Isaiah about his woeful condition. Simply being in the presence of holiness, being in the presence of goodness, of of rightness, it is all that it takes for Isaiah to know exactly who he is in that moment. The presence of holiness and goodness, it brings forth a vision, an awareness of how he is cursed, how he is impure and lost and broken and other. Being in God's presence, it overwhelms Isaiah. It overwhelms his darkness and sin, and he is decimated. Think about it this way. Have you ever been around someone and their beauty and goodness show up? (laughs) What happens in you? Perhaps it was someone who invited you to dinner and embodied hospitality. When you moved through their house, you became aware of the level of detail that they put in into their space. Things were orchestrated with detail to give you a sense that you were home, that you were the guest of honor. The smell and the taste of the food, it was sublime. It hit every flavor note with delight and splendor, and you had to have more. (laughs) The conversation was inviting and full of curiosity and attention, like, like they even heard the veiled emotions in your words, and they would gently and lovingly move towards those real and more vulnerable places to see you more fully and to connect. Time ticked away without your notice because you were hypnotized by the way that you belong there. And maybe, maybe in those moments when this lavish generosity that landed on you, you even allowed yourself to think, what did I do to deserve this? Maybe it became easy to, to compare. Why haven't I experienced this before? Why, why am I not like this? And perhaps as you lingered in those thoughts and feelings, you were in awe, in awe of the lavish and purposed intention of making you feel like this was home. And maybe, just maybe, that bit of darkness snuck up into you as well. That allowed you to feel jealous or envious. And you wanted to take what was given to you and do it better or even to diminish it because it was dangerously disruptive and on its way to healing or changing something in you. Either way, being in the presence of goodness and beauty and life, it impacted you. So being in God's presence, in the presence of pure goodness, of rightness, It burst upon Isaiah like a raging fire. It it was sudden, and he knew. He knew in an instant who he was before the king. 
So God doesn't just leave Isaiah in his place of woe, of being lost and undone. No, look, look what happens in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. The searing hot coal, it touched Isaiah's lips. And, and why does this happen, right? Well, the, the true king is, is calling Isaiah to be a voice for his kingdom, to speak truth, to speak life, to offer repentance and wholeness for people who have given their allegiance to a dead king and a way of life that leads into destruction and emptiness and idolatry. And Isaiah's lips, they needed to be purified from pride, from the spitefulness in his words, from the bad motives that undergirded them. Right? He needed to be cleansed to invite people to God. He not only needed to confess the wrong that was within him, but he needed to confess the wrong that exists in the very thing that he will use to serve God, that his lips can be filled with evil. And God needed to purge the sin from his lips. And let me just say this. This is how transformation works, right? Some of our relationships, dare I say some of our marriages, they are propped up by the prosperity around us. The contentment lulls us to sleep. It makes silent the challenges and the frustrations that might exist in our relationships. You have a good job, financial security, stability. Heck, maybe even your kids, they seem happy and content. And maybe even things appear peaceful on the outside. We, we don't argue too much. There's a, a relative ease. We even, know enough, we even know enough not to push certain buttons or ask certain things from my spouse because that would be disruptive. But what if God started to stir and began to awaken you to see the ways that your peace often comes at the price of a fuller connection, a fuller intimacy, an honest accounting of the challenges and the cost of silence in your relationship. And when God begins to stir the prophet in a relationship, giving voice to the brokenness, it often begins when the lips of someone in that relationship, they find their courage because they have seen or they have experienced or tasted something fuller or brighter or purer than that peaceful existence your relationship has agreed to hold. And God makes atonement, purifying and transforming so that faithful prophets can rise up to offer wholeness and life. Well, after this transforming encounter with God, the voice of the Lord, it calls out to Isaiah and invites him into mission. And Isaiah, in what feels like a scene out of a movie, right, in fact, Emphatically, he calls back to God's question of sending with a resounding, here I am, send me. And when God gives him the script, that courageous and inspiring line from Isaiah, it starts to fill up with sadness and dread and heartache from all the silence, all the blindness, all the hardness. It seems to be moving to an inevitable end, destruction. And this is what it can be like to be a prophet. This is what it can be like to be in mission with God. Frankly, this is what it can be like 
to be a Christian. This is what it can be like when you invite individuals and groups of people into true worship, into real faith, to become more whole, to repent, to turn to our God, and they are unmoved. And this turning in faith, this repentance, this deep work is always the path that God leads us into in his kingdom. And when you get to that path, it presents some honest questions about your life. Who or what do you worship? Is it all your fragile prosperity? Is it your health? Is it your attractiveness? The the power and the privilege you hold from being in the right tribe? And and then there are other questions, right? Will, Will you move away from the love and the devotion you hold to those things? Will you move away from them knowing that it may be disruptive to the life you are living? And it may mean that to have a healthier, a more intimate, a connected relationship, or even a marriage, you may need to disrupt the ways you have, exist, have existed in that relationship. It may mean that those, you, that those you who have never had to listen to or understand people outside your culture or ethnic context, you need to begin listening and with humility and empathy. It may even mean that you have to agitate or give voice to things, things like racial injustice, because black skin bears the image of God and it needs to be honored and loved and held with beauty and dignity in God's kingdom. And if a people won't do it, God certainly will. There's a lot of fear on the path of repentance, fear of losing relationships, fear of giving up the things that has helped you survive in this world, fear of losing your cultural identity and a place of belonging, fear of feeling the grief and the sadness and the suffering when you travel a long way on that path. But here's the thing, before we get lost down there in all the fear and sadness and despair and all the death and destruction, Isaiah, he points to that place on the other side, that place that our hearts long for, that place of rescue and relief and restoration and life. He points us to hope. And God gives Isaiah words, words to tell Israel. And they're brutally honest, really honest about the consequences of of breaking bad, right? Of turning away from God as, as a people and a nation. And Isaiah, he is looking towards to their demise. And and we have the advantage of of looking back and knowing that Assyria does come. And the northern kingdom of Israel is essentially wiped out. And we have seen in our news, you know, how devastating that the fires have been in the forest in the northwest part of our country. And Isaiah, he picks up the similar imagery. He says the nation will be like a forest whose stumps are burned after the trees are cut down. And it's from this place of desolation, this place of despair and utter devastation that Isaiah gives a glimmer of hope. Even from burned up stumps, a sprout of life can emerge. There'll be a remnant of faithful people and out of those people there will be an offspring who is holy who is come who is the coming king the messiah who will save the people from their sin friends we have a savior he's called mighty god prince of peace 
He will establish an everlasting peace, not through might, but through his own death. That, uh, that is a vulnerability that makes, a de- that makes defense against it pointless. Right? Of, of, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. His rule will be filled with justice and righteousness. The church, this rule that Jesus announced, this is the rule that, Je- that, that Jesus taught us about. This is the rule that he established through his cross and resurrection and ascension. And this, this very rule is the rule that is being established with highs and lows among us, among God's people, while most of the world walks by and pays no mind at all. This is the peaceable rule that you and I have been called to embody through earnest, through earnest love of God and neighbor in the dark places that encompass not only the things that we say, but the things that we do, what we do with our gifts, resources we've been given. And when you and I hopefully and earnestly love in the dark places of this world, God is happy to use that work even if it seems small to us, to, to kick back the darkness and fear. As Jesus taught us so poignantly, you are the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this good news, that our real and present hope and joy is found in the person of Jesus our good and gracious and mighty King. We pray in his name. Amen.
having heard God's word and as we prepare to go out as his people led by his spirit, let's pray the Lord's prayer together, this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I invite you to stand to receive God's blessing. May the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace.